1: Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology, when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're bringing you another Explained episode where we take a question we get frequently from our listeners and take a deep dive. If you have any questions you'd like us to cover on upcoming Explained episodes about the recent election, the transition to the Biden administration, our mission, or anything else, you can reach us at podcast at lincolnproject.us. So let's get into it. Since the polls closed last Tuesday, we've gotten tons of questions about what went right and what went wrong, and why critical battleground states went to each candidate, and why Senate elections broke the way they did. There is no one better to help us understand this than my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike, I won't do it again, Madrid. Thank you for being on again, Mike. What'd you have for breakfast? (laughs) I had numbers for breakfast. (laughs) Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. It looks like he's going to receive 306 electoral votes as of right now. On the national level, we saw a shift among white college-educated voters. In 2016, Trump won that demographic 48 to 45. And in 2020, Joe Biden won a majority of votes cast by college-educated white voters 51 to 48. What moved them... Toward Biden?
2: So, this is uh, the million dollar question because this was the demographic that we had been looking at and have been talking about all along. We have made the case very clearly that this the, the schism that exists in the Republican Party is directly correlated to education. College educated voters are the most likely to move away from Donald Trump. That is indeed what happened in greater numbers than they did in 2016. That was the whole premise of what the Lincoln Project was trying to accomplish and we got the job done. So the question remains, what was it? Well, it was a number of things. The first uh, overarching issue, of course, was COVID, the pandemic. That was just the one unescapable issue. Mm -hmm. And what we were reinforcing was the incompetence and mismanagement of the situation that led to economic collapse and the lack of economic opportunity. That's the message that was working generally with suburban college-educated women, Early into the summer months, as the pandemic got bigger, and into the fall, what we realized was we were getting a marginal return with women. So we then turned our fire on targeting college-educated white males. And obviously, with this outcome, it worked.
1: And college-educated white men in 2016 uh, voted 39% for Hillary Clinton and 48% for Joe Biden this year. That's a nine-point move, pretty significant, very yeah. consequential. And yeah. that's, so again, as I've counseled many times,
2: history is made on the margins. This is more than marginal. This is a nine-point swing targeting men. You heard us talk a lot about women, a lot mm-hmm. about suburban college educated women. Mm-hmm. There were many marginal returns there. Because so many of them moved away in 2016, even more moved in 2018 midterms. I'm sure we got a point or two more on top of that. But we, the numbers just weren't going to get any bigger. If you're still stuck with, with Trump as a college-educated suburban woman, you're probably not going to move. We moved to their husbands and to their male counterparts in the suburbs.
1: And that's how we got a nine-point shift. So we've talked about the Bannon line quite a bit. And just so everyone remembers, early in January... Uh, I believe Steve Bannon told the Associated Press that if these guys, meaning us, the Lincoln Project, could move 3 to 4% of Republican voters away from Donald Trump, that we would be a serious threat. And then, Mike, you and your team started referring to this threshold as the Bannon line. And on the national level, Trump won about 94% of votes cast by Republicans. So can you talk about how successful we were at moving these voters?
2: Well, the 94% metric actually says that we were successful in accomplishing just that goal. And um, again, it wasn't just our strategy that we realized. We were very transparent, very public about it. And that's why Steve Bannon agreed with us. And I guess in this situation, we're grateful that he too was right. So let's walk through some of the states and walk through the numbers and show you just how successful the strategy was. Let's start with Arizona, right? A state that was a Trump state in 16, flips to Biden. 90% Ninety percent of Republicans vote for Trump. Ten percent movement. double the bannon line plus some uh, towards towards Joe Biden. a double bannon, Four. a double bannon, yeah, <laughs> two and a half times. So Florida, which of course goes for Trump, sit's at ninety three percent of Republicans for Trump and seven percent for Biden. Florida's a little bit interesting. Almost got to double the bannon line there. But as you're all probably aware, Donald Trump significantly overperformed with a key democratic constituency, which was Hispanic voters. That offset the Republican shift. We were focused, obviously, much more, as we should have been, on the Republican numbers. More work needed to be done with Hispanics. Florida's Florida. Uh, It is what it is. Um, So we move on from there to Georgia. This will be important as we start to try to replicate the successes in Georgia. 94% of Republicans voted for Donald Trump. 6% voted for Biden. We, again, exceeded our goals there. If we're able to do that again, I think we could have a good special election uh, in January with the two U.S. Senate races that we're going to be involved in. Michigan, 93% of Republicans voted for Trump, 6% go for Biden. This state, of course, goes for Joe Biden. North Carolina, a state we talked about a lot and we Mm -hmm. invested a lot of resources. This state was really, we were stuck on this when we could not move Republicans past that ban in line number. 96% of Republicans rally behind Donald Trump. We get to 4%. And actually, in the last four or five weeks of the campaign, we saw the numbers were not moving. Uh, We couldn't break the ban in line. We met it, which was great. It's why it's really within 1% that race right now. But we realized we were going to have to move to other states like Pennsylvania, which we'll talk about in just a second, and Georgia late in the race where we saw more movement. And that movement, obviously, we think was decisive. Clearly in Georgia, that's what made the difference. And obviously, the insurance in Pennsylvania is what we were looking for. Uh, So that's North Carolina. Ohio, 92% vote for Trump. We hit 7%. Uh, Republicans in Ohio voted for Joe Biden. Again, almost double the Bannon line. Remember, Mm -hmm. Ohio wasn't even a targeted state. It wasn't one of those states that we were talking about really even as a swing. We just ceded it to Trump and built all of our 270 maps around that. But in the last few weeks of the campaign, Ohio starts looking a little bit funky. It moves into range. Trump is only up one point and people are going, wait a second, maybe there's a way to get there. We did not go heavily into Ohio at any point. We, we were watching those numbers late, but what it really told us is that we could probably move numbers in Erie County and in uh, Lucerne County and in the, the more conservative deep MAGA counties and what's called the T of Pennsylvania That was an indication that we needed to move money out of North Carolina into Pennsylvania, move that margin, and I'm pretty convinced that when all the votes were counted, Joe Biden's going to win that race by about 100,000 votes, which is a pretty sizable uh, segment. And again, Ohio was the key indicator when we started to move Republican numbers in that direction.
1: Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania,
2: The big one. This was yeah. the one that we were very, very invested in very early. Yep. We moved this from what we call the swing states to more of an insurance state. This was the state that, you know, when when Florida and North Carolina went went uh, down, went to Trump, which again, you and I were talking about and saying this is probably the way the map is going to roll out. We knew that Pennsylvania was going to look very good for us if two things happened. We needed a strong turnout in Philadelphia, which we knew we would come late. It would come after the you know, what people called but the term I don't like, the red mirage But more importantly, we needed to mitigate that T, the deep MAGA counties. Mm -hmm. We needed to make sure that people were coming home. This was that that Bannon line strategy. We get 8% of Republicans to cross over and vote for Joe Biden. That's double the Bannon line. Mm -hmm. So Project Lincoln Lincoln Project's work, rather, was very effective. We were working uh, tooth and nail, especially in those really conservative parts of the state. That's what mitigated the Trump upward trajectory and why Pennsylvania comes home. Texas, a state we did go into late, a state that we were looking very hard at, we moved to 5% of Republicans in Texas um, vote for Joe Biden. Pretty good, especially Pretty a very conservative state. Yeah. Pretty good for Texas. Yeah. Not enough to get there. Again, not because the Republican crossover wasn't significant enough. It was because the Hispanic vote right. didn't get the break that we needed. And again, this was not an area that we were, had, we were resourced enough to work on and effectively move. But again, Texas is moving in this direction. When you start to see four, five, 6% of Republicans breaking towards the Democrat and even higher Latino turnout, you may not be getting the 25% of Hispanics, yeah. but if you keep that under 33%,
1: Texas is going to go blue. But we should, but we should just note what a big deal it was that Texas was even in play in the first place. Oh, geez. Not not only Texas. Yeah. I mean, Beto came on the podcast to talk about this and we were, you know, we were really pumped at the time because it was a, this wasn't, this wasn't a head fake. This was a real possibility at a point. Oh yeah. yeah, there's no question. And keep in mind, Georgia. You know, people are going, is that a head fake? No, Georgia was real. Arizona is
2: real. Yeah. These were these were Hillary. I mean, yeah. sorry, these were these were Trump 2016 red states. Hillary yeah. had looked at some of them. She actually showed up in Arizona late. These numbers were real. They are real. And and keep in mind. We're not done counting all these votes. When we do, this Mm -hmm. election was not that close, okay? The the actual raw votes totals are widening consistently and regularly. It's certainly wider than it was when Donald Trump won. They both ended up with 306 electoral votes. But the popular vote, when it's finally counted, is going to be well over 5 million, uh, maybe even much bigger, um, this race, it, it's it's close only in the sense that it's taken uh, four or five days to count. Right, but right. when the when all the votes are counted, this race was not uh, nearly as close as it felt.
1: But we knew that was going to be the case all along. Is well, exactly it is exactly what we've been saying. Yes. Yeah, we did podcasts <laughs> on it. you are going to reiterate again. that over and over <laughs> and over did. again. Like, why yes. is he doing this? Well, this yeah. is why. Right? Well, right. we needed to remind people over and over again that this is exactly how it was going to play out.
2: Yeah. And it is important to look back and I've checked some of these these past podcasts. A mm-hmm. lot of what we were saying about that has played out precisely the way that it was going to. That's right. The Bannon line concept, exactly the numbers that we're at. Like we're talking about one or point differentials in most of these states. The only place where we hit the Bannon line exactly in the battleground was North Carolina. Everywhere else we exceeded it, pushed most of these states into the Biden column. And like, to your point, there were states like, uh, like Georgia and Arizona that that really were not even really on the map as early as seven, eight months ago.
1: Right. And then Wisconsin.
2: Wisconsin, the last state, again, uh, we hit 7% of Republicans moving over to Biden, 93% vote for Trump, Look, I wish that we had pushed the numbers a little bit uh, bigger there. We did invest in Wisconsin. We came a little bit later than we'd like to. Again, we were looking more at an insurance policy here. Wisconsin, from all the public and in our own internal polling, was showing a very consistent wide range. Those numbers did fall short. We can talk about that a little bit, but obviously we put it in the win column. And when you get 7% of Republicans voting for Joe Biden undeniably, unquestionably, that's the margin of victory here, and we need to be proud of that and proud of what our supporters did to help us out to get there.
1: Absolutely. So, let's take a look at some of the states that went to Trump in 2016 and then to Biden in 2020. So, in 2016, Trump won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, as we've now heard so many times, by about 77,000 votes across all three states. And right now, it looks like Biden has won all three of those states by over 200,000 votes across all three states. So, what allowed Biden to win these states and who were the voters we looked to target in these states to push them from Trump to Biden?
2: Great question. And this is really important for a couple of reasons. it's really the main, the same demographic here. What we were looking at was a mix of these college educated uh, suburban voters, okay, in most of these communities. And as we just talked about earlier, we got 9% of men to move over that shifted from from, uh, uh, Trump over to Biden uh, that's That That alone is really the margin of victory here. So our focusing on that in, for the entirety of this year, that just the hammering, hammering, hammering on the cultural issues, the racial issues, the economic issues, the COVID issues, we were just pounding these voters, trying to chip away and get at this movement. That's where this came from, okay? And what's really interesting is when we look at the night, when we look at uh, the 2020 election night, what happened was looking at Florida fall, looking at North Carolina fall, what we were looking at as the Lincoln project was, what are our four strongest states? And they were the Great Lakes states and Pennsylvania. Much of this is what used to be called the old blue wall, Mm. is how could we reconstruct that and put that back up? That's why I had a high degree of confidence that we were going to bring some of these states back home. It was a little bit awkward because it's in a separate time zone and there's a later count. So there's three or four hours where you're going, my God, is this a 2016 flashback? Is this all going to be happening again? Our data was saying, no, this is exactly where we needed to be. And what we also had was the fifth state, which was Arizona. We invested in early uh, in case one of those states went south, in case one of the Great Lakes states was lost. We had the insurance policy of Arizona as a backup to make sure we got Biden to 270.
1: So let's talk about Arizona a little bit since you brought it up because it's another state that went from Trump in 2016 to Biden 2020. And you've talked about the Sun Belt and the new Southern strategy. We've done that a few times on the podcast before. So how were we able to reach voters in Arizona?
2: Okay, Arizona is really cool. And this is a state that I was really excited about very early on. As you know, Mm -hmm. it's one I convinced everybody that we needed to go and invest in early. And it was really for an insurance policy to be a backup in case the night started to unfold. And if we lost one of the Great Lakes states, here's the difference between Arizona and Texas. We We receive a slightly larger shift, actually 10%, two and a half times the band in line of the college educated white voter. Reason why is there's a lot of exodus of California, Uh, new economy workers that are moving into Maricopa County, moving into Mesa, Tempe, Phoenix area, and they're changing the politics of that region. But another really important distinction, and that is this, the Hispanic vote in Arizona for the first time is decidedly different than what we were seeing in Texas. The Hispanic vote in Arizona, all Mexican-American vote, incidentally, voted very similarly to California's Hispanic vote about 26, 27%. Texas is sitting at the mid-30s, mid to high-30s range. You go into the Rio Grande Valley and Trump is getting upwards of the low-40s, high-30s percentage range. That's a very important distinction because it's the first time that we're seeing variation in the Mexican-American vote in the Southwest. What do these two states have in common, Arizona and California? They both have gone through tremendously politicized mm. uh, anti-immigrant experiences, right? Mm-hmm. You have Joe Arpaio in Arizona mm-hmm. just a few years ago in 2016 who loses, not dissimilar to what was happening in California in the mid-1990s with Pete Wilson. You have anti-immigrant measures on the ballot, and you have a Republican Party that turns decidedly anti-immigrant have not had that same type of experience in Texas, certainly haven't had that in Florida. That's the reason why you have Mexican-Americans in Arizona and California as the most anti-Republican segments of the Latino electorate. That's what brought Arizona home.
1: It's amazing. So pretty early on election night, it became clear that Trump was going to win Florida. And Rick and Reid both mentioned last week on the podcast that you said we should move our resources elsewhere. So can you talk about what you were seeing and what led to Trump taking Florida?
2: So as I've always said, and you've probably heard me say this on, on uh, LPTV a few times, Florida is Florida. And what, what, what the decision was, we could either stay and fight knowing that groups like ARVAT and Joe Biden were going to come and the Biden super PAC we started to become a little bit of a nominal player here. And what I'm always looking for is what we call the efficiency of the spend. Mm -hmm. Where are we going to get the greatest return for our investment? But most importantly, strategically, is if you talk to my political team, Zach and Lucas, and some of the people that you guys know and and talk to on on the podcast and LPTV, I'm always a big believer in a plan B and having a more conservative strategy. So we spent months building a map, the best map around losing Florida, Mm -hmm. mainly because it was just too much of a variable. It wasn't something that we weren't going to contest, but I always operated under the assumption that we were going to lose Florida. How would we win? And the answer to that was, if we lost Florida, we needed to make darn sure that the three Great Lakes states and Pennsylvania were brought home and then invest early so that we would have Arizona in our back pocket. That is exactly what happened. Now, keep in mind, we also invested in North Carolina. We wanted to go aggressively with an offensive posture there. We invested throughout the early voting states. We knew it was going to be close, but we were not seeing the movement that we needed to see amongst Republicans. We could not break through the Bannon line. So we took those resources late. We moved them into Pennsylvania in the T. And then we also moved into Georgia where we thought we had a better offensive Mm -hmm. position Mm -hmm. if we were going to target uh, college-educated men and women in the Atlanta suburbs. And that's exactly what happened. Those returns are the last ones coming in, and those are the votes that will put, along with the huge African-American turnout, uh, Joe Biden over the top. That's right. But Florida specifically, again, very anomalous state, a little bit too risky to invest too big. Absolutely true that mathematically it would have been virtually impossible for Trump to win mm-hmm. had he taken uh, had he not taken Florida, but the risk was just too high. We knew that there were too many there were other players there. We met our goals with the bannon line. We were spending tons of money with sixty five plus voters, especially in the northern part of the state. We saw the softness that was happening with the Hispanic vote and realized, you know what? Let's not double down there. Let's just go play a little bit more uh, defensive. Let's get the insurance. Let's put this race away and not get greedy. We may lose Florida, but we're confident our numbers are better in Pennsylvania. Let's go to the T in Pennsylvania and spend our dough
0: there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
1: OK, and just while we're on the presidential race, one final note um, I want to throw in here is about independence, because we did spend a considerable amount of our time and efforts moving independent voters as well as Republicans. And in November of 2016, independents identified themselves as 43% leaning toward Republican and 46% leaning toward the Democratic Party. And in October of 2020, independents were leaning 45% Republican and 49% Democratic. Now that's basically the same. It's within the margin of of the survey uh, that was used to measure these leanings. So, the but the key difference here is that in 16. Trump won those independents by about four points, 46, 42. And in 20 this year, Biden won them 54 to 41. So Mike, how do you account for that?
2: Well, that's really significant, by the way. And this was one of the really important tactical decisions that we made. Jennifer Horn, one of our uh, fellow co-founders, actually headed up an initiative called the Republicans and Independents for Biden for specifically this purpose. We knew that even if we were hitting the band in line or meeting it, there's always an insurance policy with these independents and late breakers. There's a group basically that we call dual haters. They don't like either candidate. They didn't like them in 16. They didn't like them in 2020. They're just kind of grouchy folks. The key, as you just pointed out, was these voters went for Donald Trump in 2016 by four percentage points. Biden shifts them over and wins them by 13 points. Another huge element of what Republicans and independents for, for Biden was about messaging was essentially the same message we were using for white college educated male we put those in our same targeted universes they were responding and again that added to the margin of victory in some of these close states and in some of these larger states as well
1: okay i want to switch gears just a little bit to talk about a less cheerful subject and that is the senate uh Mark Kelly and John Hickenlooper both defeated Republican incumbents in Arizona and Colorado, but Senators like Joni Ernst and Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham all won. And right before we started recording, Cal Cunningham conceded in the North Carolina Senate race. so Tom Tillis is going back to the Senate. Mike, how were these senators able to hold on to their seats?
2: Well, a couple things happened because it wasn't
1: just in the Senate, right?
2: You saw Republicans pick up not just a couple seats, yeah. but a considerable amount yeah. of seats. Yeah. You also saw a number of seats in places like California where Republican seats, Republicans came back up.
1: Something extremely anomalous the happened. They picked up seats in the House as well. So Nancy Pelosi's majority is much thinner than it was before.
2: Yeah, it wasn't just one or two. It's like 10, right? right? It's a big
1: movement. So what
2: happened was, and this was what I think nobody really foresaw, except, and give them credit, the Trump people saw, uh, this this upswing of new voters coming in. The Trump folks identified very early on that there was a large swath, probably a larger swath of their base that was not voting. This non-college educated white base, there were millions of votes laying out there that they did not get uh, in 2016 that they thought that they could get in 2020. I think a lot of conventional wisdom, ourselves included, thought that's going to be just too expensive to do and the rate of return that they're going to get is going to be too de minimis. But in fact, that is what happened. There was yet again an an overperformance with non-college educated white voters. But, and this is a very important distinction, at the same time that they were getting more of these very low propensity voters, a lot of these establishment Republicans, kind of Lincoln Project Republicans, were voting down ticket for the Republican, but they were not voting for the president up top. That's the band in line concept. So you have these two convergence data sets meeting in the Republican electorate, and that's how you get a very high turnout with Donald Trump losing at the top, and you have an overperformance on the undervote where there are more people voting for Republicans down ticket than they were at the top of the ticket. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if they, were able to, if they were able to gel their base If they were able to get these new voters and have the establishment come together in a coalition, you would have seen a Republican red wave that would have wiped everything out. Trump would have won by four or five points. But they
1: didn't do that. They they couldn't
2: do do that, that. and they're not not going to do that. That's the important part is these Lincoln Project voters are preventing the, the, the Republican Party from becoming a national party. They're just having, they're not having it. And again, that's, it's people like us who are just committed and saying there's absolutely no way if you don't get us five, six, seven, eight percent of Republicans, you are at your high peak. There just, or you cannot turn out another five to seven percent of low propensity, non-college educated white voters in rural states. There's just not enough there. You've got to start speaking to college educated, informed Republicans, and we're not with you, and we're not going to sign up for this nonsense. We will, we will, in some instances, vote down ticket because we're not Democrats. We're not supporting this Democratic agenda, and we want a check on the new president. And that's what you saw. That's the dynamic you saw. For example, in Orange County, where there was, or California, where you saw pickup of four, possibly four Republican seats, and then six other seats around around the country. But there's that's a real, real big red flag and a warning sign for Kevin McCarthy and for Mitch McConnell. Yes, is if you think this is a mandate, you're making a really, really big mistake.
1: So I just want to take a moment to underscore this for our listeners, Mike who are Lincoln voters and emphasize just how big the electoral significance is of this particular coalition. Can you distill that down into, I don't know, a tweet?
2: (laughs) Yeah, let me just put it this way. Um, The Lincoln voter demonstrated that it is strong enough to elect significant numbers in Congress, but prevent a nationalist candidate from becoming president. The 4% that we have been talking about mm. are the margins made in history. And if these Lincoln Project voters stay loyal to this cause and to these principles, they will literally control the, the locus of power within the Republican Party's ability to expand beyond its regional marginalized base. It's as simple as that. Maybe two tweets.
1: Maybe two tweets. Thanks to everyone at home for being here. And Mike, thanks to you for taking the time to sit down with us today.
2: That was great, Ron. Thanks for having me.
1: This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.